break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 29th of April, 2022. Very happy to be back with you here on the show. And we've got plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about whether or not there are some glimmers of hope as it concerns the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. But before we get to that story, we want to start with the potentially 20 million acres of poisoned cropland all across the United States. As many as 20 million acres of cropland in the United States could be contaminated by toxic sewage sludge, according to a new analysis from the Environmental Working Group. The poisons from that sludge builds up in food crops and also feed crops used for animals that you and I are also eating. And in fact, in some cases, it was so bad, farmers have had to kill their animals due to contamination by various chemicals that are in this sewage sludge. The sewage sludge is officially referred to as quote-unquote biosolids. They are the byproducts of the wastewater treatment process and are used as a form of fertilizer in cropland all across the United States. Since 2016, 19.1 billion tons of this sewage sludge has been used as fertilizer in states across the country. Certain pathogens and metals are not allowed in the sludge, ostensibly to keep us safe. However, there are no national requirements or standards for testing the sludge for PFAS chemicals, better known as forever chemicals, because they never break down in the environment and they build up in our bodies, and that's something that's been linked to numerous health risks. Very low doses of these PFAS chemicals in drinking water are linked to a suppression of our immune systems. The chemicals have also been credibly linked to elevated risk for cancer. And on top of that, as the Environmental Working Group states, exposure to these forever chemicals can, quote, lead to developmental and reproductive toxicity, including low birth weight, thyroid disruption, harm to the male reproductive system pregnancy-induced hypertension, and some evidence of shorter duration of breastfeeding and infertility, end quote. The chemicals get into the sludge as a result of the discharge from industrial operations that also ends up in wastewater treatment plants, and also sometimes by mixing into the irrigation water that, of course, is then mixed into the sludge that uses fertilizer. And ultimately, it all builds up in the sludge that is spread all over the nation's cropland. A study in Ohio showed that about 5% of the cropland in that state was fertilized with this sludge. According to EWG estimates of state-level data from the EPA, anywhere from 2 million to 20 million acres nationwide is being fertilized with this toxic sewage sludge. Both Maine and Michigan have found that there were high levels of PFAS chemicals in the sludge. Maine even produced a map of farms treated with the sludge as essentially a warning. As mentioned before, in some cases, farmers were forced to kill their animals after they found high levels of PFAS in farm products like milk. 
It isn't entirely clear which food crops that we directly eat that become the most contaminated, but there are multiple studies showing that the risk is very real. Lettuce and tomatoes seem to have the highest uptake of PFAS chemicals from the sewage sludge, according to an EPA analysis. As also mentioned earlier, there is no national standard for testing sludge for PFAS chemicals. And a recently released roadmap from the EPA about addressing forever chemicals only says that a study on the issue of the toxic sewage sludge on cropland will be done and that it won't be completed until 2024. It also offers no deadline for any action to address the issue of industrial discharge of PFAS chemicals into the broader environment. So that's something to think about here. The government, despite knowing the food we eat could be contaminated by poison, is taking basically no serious action to stop it because to do so would mean challenging the powerful corporations that are using these chemicals for their operations. Hopes were raised around the world that the Ramadan ceasefire in Yemen could lead to a lessening of the conflict that has become known as the world's worst humanitarian disaster. The evidence so far of progress towards peace is mixed. This week, Saudi Arabia announced it would release 163 prisoners taken in battle with the Houthi movement, which appears to be a unilateral measure as UN broker talks continue over prisoner swaps that could release as many as 1,000 prisoners from each side. On the other hand, the opening of the airport in Sana'a, the Yemeni capital, which, like most of the populated areas of Yemen, is under Houthi control, has hit a snag as Saudi Arabia has refused to issue permits for civilian flights. The kingdom is demanding all passengers who would be flying from Yemen to Jordan carry passports from the puppet government, the Saudis, along with the United Arab Emirates, installed after invading Yemen in 2015. The United Nations stated this week that they are working behind the scenes to roll back these roadblocks to leaving the country that has been under a Saudi blockade during the war, with only the occasional humanitarian flight or ship allowed in. Along with the deliberate Saudi bombing of critical infrastructure, this has led to a situation in which virtually the entire population of Yemen is living in poverty, starving, and subsisting almost totally on meager international aid stocks. The Houthi leadership has also made it clear this week that they don't view these Saudis as being truly interested in peace because of the challenges at the airport. But in what is at least a partially hopeful sign, the ceasefire does continue to hold. Saudi Arabia and Iran also recently concluded another round of talks hosted by Iraq to attempt to mend the rift between the two principal Middle Eastern powers. Well, outside of Israel, that is. Both sides are saying that the atmosphere is quote-unquote constructive, but very little substantive agreements seem to have been broached as the issue of Yemen is a major sticking point. Saudi Arabia wants Iran to scale back its support for the Houthi movement, which is more moral than material, while Iran feels the Yemen file should be maintained on a separate track and outside of the Saudi-Iran track. With the Iran deal looming, however, both Saudi Arabia and Iran have a reason to try to find a way to get along to a degree, and given the total inability of Saudi Arabia to subdue Yemen, it seems likely that any positive talks between Iran and Saudi Arabia will open up the possibility for a deal in Yemen as well. One other wild card is the obvious U.S. anger at Saudi Arabia for refusing to turn on Russia over the Ukraine or participate in U.S. attempts to isolate China. Along those lines this week, the U.K. released a number of documents related to the September 11th attacks that further solidified the growing evidence of direct Saudi complicity in the attacks, something that would only happen, the release of the documents, that is, if the U.S. greenlit that process. 
And this certainly gives the Saudis another spur to look for a solution in Yemen, since the backing of the U.S. is a major factor in their ability to carry out this brutal war in Yemen. Any break in that support or lessening in that support could have the Saudi offensives collapse like a house of cards. Underlying all of this, however, is the so-called Abraham Accords that have seen several Arab nations normalize relations with Israel, clearly as a hedge against Iran, and to some degree, it seems like many Gulf Arab countries are looking to use the Israeli nuclear arsenal as a counterweight to Iranian influence and a further solidification of their own power, which undoubtedly will temper any major rapprochement with Iran. All told, it seems just as likely that a new regional quote-unquote Cold War-style scenario might emerge rather than any real lasting peace and cooperation. How it all shakes out is yet to be seen, but at least as it concerns the war in Yemen, there may be at least a slight glimmer of hope that the humanitarian crisis could ease. That's the punch-out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah, yeah.